You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. The truths that we sang about this morning, God's grace, wonderful grace of Jesus, grace greater than our sin, we serve an amazing God. I'm telling you, we need, uh, we need those kinds of songs on a day that your pastor is preaching out of Genesis 38. I'll just say that. Um, because most of the time you come to a passage and you're excited to preach it. And, and the rest of Genesis is like that. I'm excited to get into the life of Joseph. Um, but there's this kind of inserted chapter here, Genesis 38, in the middle of all of Joseph's narratives. And you're kind of scratching your head like, what? What is this doing here? It's, it's hard to read um, and even harder to preach, okay? So you may feel uncomfortable as I read this text today, but I'm telling you, you don't feel as uncomfortable as I do because sometimes the text is just hard. Um, and yet in expository preaching, it's here for a reason and you preach what's next. And so we're preaching what's next and I do think by the end of it, I'm hoping that we we come to the, to the same conclusion. There's some real value in Genesis 38. So Genesis 38, we'll stand and read this. I know it's a long text, and we'll try to get through this. I'll give you a couple of comments, and then we'll move through it pretty quick. Genesis 38, it says in verse 1, And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. Um, so just notice first that Judah leaves his family and he goes and aligns himself with an Adulamite, a Canaanite, somebody from the land, somebody that does not serve Judah's God. So there's his first mistake, okay? He already, we already see he's got the wrong mindset. Verse 2, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. That's the, the dad's name, Shua the Canaanite. And he took this woman, this Canaanite, she's unnamed here, says he took her and went in under her. So he marries a Canaanite daughter. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. So that's their first son, his first son with this Canaanite woman. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan, and she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Kazib when she bare him. So he has these three sons. What kind of sons did he have? Well, verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur. That's his firstborn son. Obviously, his son has grown up. Okay, um, his, his son's old enough to be married at this time. We, we're skipping ahead. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. So that's... Judah's daughter-in-law. Okay, Tamar is Ur's wife, Judah's daughter-in-law, and Ur, Judah's firstborn. What kind of a guy was he? Well, he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. We don't, we don't hear anything else about it. We don't know what else he did. We just know that Ur, Ur's not a good guy. And he was so, so wicked to the point that God took his life. Now, I'm thankful for God's grace. There are times, though, that I do believe that we cross a line and God judges us. And I'm thankful that for the most part for us, God has extended mercy our whole lives. And I'm grateful to that point. But if you've come today 
thinking that you may be toward the end of your mercy, um, turn around today. There's no reason to qu quit to keep driving if the bridge is out. And so make sure you pay, pay attention here. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked. The Lord slew him. Verse 8, and Judah said unto Onan, this is his second son, go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. So the idea here is if a woman um, and a man got married and before they had children, the husband dies and there's a widow, culturally speaking, that widow would go to the brother or the close relative, a close kin of her husband that passed away because they want to continue the line. They want, they want that couple, that original couple, to have as, as, they're, as if they're having children. They want her to have children, but it would be considered, and Onan knows this, it would be considered Ur's children. Because he took Ur's wife, Tamar, has children with her. It's a different culture, okay, just try to understand. It's a different culture, but that's the way it was. You went to the, the widow without children would go to the closest kinsman. So Judah says to Onan, go take your brother's wife. He doesn't want to. Verse 9, Onan knew that the seed should not be his. It would be his brother's technically. He didn't want the responsibility. So it says, and it came to pass when he went in unto, unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest he should give seed to his brother. And in verse 10, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Wherefore he slew him also. So there's where it gets a little uncomfortable for those with that understand what's going on here, then, then you know that what he did in the sight of God was, was wicked. Because he was willing to enjoy the pleasure of the moment, but he didn't want to take the responsibility that came with it. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Verse 11. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, so again, Judah's daughter-in-law is Tamar, remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown for he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. So he's thinking, I need children. I need a seed to continue. And so far, if they marry Tamar, they die. So he doesn't want his last son, Shelah, to marry her. Because she has a bad track record. She's a, you know, in his mind, it's her fault. Well, but what he should be doing is looking at his sons. Because it's his son's wickedness that caused this problem. So he says, wait till Shelah is older and then you can marry him. But he has no intention of letting Shelah marry Tamar. So Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house, verse 12. And in, the pro and in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. So now Judah himself, his wife, dies. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath. He and his friend Hirah, the Adulamite. So he's now a widower, so he goes on business to count his flocks and shear his sheep and whatever he's doing. Verse 13, and it was told Tamar, this is the daughter-in-law, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she schemes a plan. So she puts her widow's garments off from her and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. So she's not happy. When Judah saw her, though, he thought her to be an harlot, a prostitute, because she had covered her face. 
And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, um, I will send thee a kid, a goat, okay? Not a kid, a goat from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And he, she said, Thy signet, which would be his ID, basically, and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. What a mess we are creating here. Verse 19, And she arose and went away and laid her veil from her, laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid, the goat, by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. So he couldn't find her. He's looking, can't find her. So he says, okay, well, she has my stuff. I guess that's good enough. Look down to verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. So it comes out, she's pregnant, and now he gets incensed. And also, behold, she's with child by whoredom. And Judas said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Well, he's righteous now, isn't he? When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet and bracelets and staff. She basically pulls out his ID. Said, whoever, whoever these things belong to, that's who the father is. And at that point, he knows he's been had. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. So he did confess, he did admit, and he did not continue in that relationship. Verse 27, And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in, the, in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. So one of the sons sticks his hand out, about to be born. They put the scarlet thread on, saying, This is the oldest. Uh, not so fast, because this is a drama full chapter. Uh, verse 30, 29, And it came to pass as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out, and she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Okay, wow, good night. What a story. And you know what? Honestly, the word I thought of when I was reading this is, man, I'm kind of blushing here. It's embarrassing. But if you know the end of the story, you also know that God took them from blushing to blessing. And only he can do it in circumstances like this. Aren't you glad that God's grace is greater than our failures? I mean, how many moments of life have, you, have left you blushing? Your own actions, your own words, your own deeds... You're full of regret, and if nothing else, what I want for you to hear today is that this story lets us know we don't have to be defined by our blushworthy moments. Aren't you thankful for that? From blushing to blessing, and I want to look at that today. You may be seated. God, may God bless the reading of his word. That was a marathon, by the way, a marathon reading. Have you ever done study about your family tree? 
You ever done that? Like on Ancestry.com or something along those lines. I, I've thought about it many times, but I've also been dissuaded, if you want to say it that way, not to, because of how many people, they get excited about looking, then they come back and they're all disappointed. Because they think they're going to find somebody rich and famous in their family tree, and they come back and they only find uh, the poor and infamous. Their, their family tree is full of criminals. Their family tree is, is, is full of robbers. Their family tree is, is full of cheaters. Their family tree is full of skeletons in the closet. And the truth is we all have skeletons in, the, in, in our family. We all have skeletons in the closet. You know, there's an embar- there are embarrassing branches in every family tree. And if there are no embarrassing family, embarrassing branches in your family tree, you, you may be the one. So um, for some of us, though, the, the normal branch is the exception. And you say, well, my family's pretty normal. And then you go to a family reunion. You're like, no, it's not, something's wrong with all of us. No. You know, this, this chapter is one of those blushworthy moments. And I, and I bring out the family tree idea because, you know, we're looking at the family tree of somebody very significant. We're looking at the family tree of somebody who changed the world. And in order to get there, I want to start by, by thinking about this family itself. Let's go back to, keep your place here in Genesis 38. We will be back. Genesis 38, but go back to Genesis 17. And I just want to read a few texts here to let you know what kind of family this is. This isn't the kind of family you would expect to have all these blushworthy moments. Genesis chapter 17, and this is God speaking to Abraham. And remember, Abraham's the father of the nation of Israel. It's the great-grandfather of Judah, our main character today. Look at chapter 17, verse 6. So this is God coming to Abraham And God says, verse 6, I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and what, what's the next word? And kings shall come out of thee. So God promises to Abraham that his family will produce kings. It will be a royal family. Look over in Genesis 35. Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. It says in verse 11, and God said unto him, now he's talking to Jacob. He says, I am God almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. And what's the next word? Kings shall come out of thy loins. Look over at Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, this is Jacob now. This is uh, Judah's father, Jacob on his deathbed. And Jacob gathers all 12 of his sons and he gives them a prophecy about their future and lets them know what their future is going to be like. And look what he says here to Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. It says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brother brethren shall praise. Okay? Now, if you read today's story, you're not thinking this is a man deserving of praise. But his name means praise. He says, thou art he whom thou bre- thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Uh, He says, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. You know what he's saying? Judah, your seed, your line is going to be kings. See, what would happen in that day if a king would conquer his enemy, then they would, as an act of humiliation, they would take the enemy and put him in front of the throne of the king. And he'd stick his feet on the neck 
of the enemy who he defeated as a show of authority and power and defeat. So he says, you're, you'll sit on your throne, your foot will be on the neck of your enemies. And he says, thy brother's children, basically your brethren, your brother's families, everyone's going to bow down to you. you. You will be royalty. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about a scepter, and a scepter is something a king has. He talks about how nations will gather around your descendants. This is royalty. Judah is the father of royalty. From his seed, from his line will come kings. Keep your place in Genesis 38 still, and let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're moving around a lot today. I feel like I owe it to you after reading that long text this morning. So we'll keep you active here for a few minutes. Matthew chapter 1. So it, God intended for Judah's family to be royalty. So are you catching that? Judah, the main character of our story, he has the promises that his family will, will be kings. They'll be royalty. And if you know your Old Testament, then you know that David came from what tribe? From the tribe of Judah. Okay, if you know your New Testament, then you know that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. You're, he's basically, the royal line comes from Judah. And honestly, kind of leaves you scratching your head a little bit. When you start to read the family tree, this is Ancestry.com, and it's not a pretty sight. Look at verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat, what's the next name? It says Judas, that's the Greek, the Greek spelling for Judah, the main character in Genesis 38. That's Judah and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar. Do those names sound familiar to you? We just read those. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. She bore those twins at the end of the chapter named Phares and Zerah. And let me just remind you, okay, these are the people in Jesus' family tree. Phares and Zerah, they're listed. They were conceived by Judah and his daughter-in-law in an act of adultery or fornication while she's dressed up like a harlot trying to get back at her father-in-law for, keep, for not keeping his word. Their sons are listed on JesusAncestry.com. These are the names in the genealogy of Christ. Look at verse 5, just so we keep going here a little bit. And Salmon or, um, begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab, does that name sound familiar? Anybody remember Rahab's line of work? She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. So he begat Boaz of, Ray, of Rahab, or Rahab. Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Does anybody remember who Ruth was? Ruth was not a Jew, was she? She was a Moabitess. David in verse 6, Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Who would that be? Who was the wife of Uriah? It was Bathsheba. So Solomon was the product of a relationship between David and Bathsheba, an adulterous relationship in which he had her husband Uriah killed before he had that or after he had that relationship and they had been conceived. You know, listen, if I, if, of all the things that I get out of reading Genesis 17 and 35 and 49 and Matthew chapter 1, it's this, is that everybody's family tree is full of brushworthy branches. Even Jesus' family tree 
was full of blush-worthy branches. And it just reminds me today that God is an amazing God. He's a God of grace. He chose Judah as the tribe to bring Christ into the world. And you kind of wonder about it. You're like, why Judah? Why not Joseph? I mean, Joseph was righteous. Joseph was faithful. Joseph was God-focused. Judah was blush-worthy. Judah had skeletons in his closet. And see, Matthew Henry wrote, God will show that his choice is of grace and not of merit. And that Christ came into the world to save sinners, even the chief, and is not ashamed upon their repentance to be allied to them. Also that he he is worth, or his worth and his worthiness are personal of himself and not derived from his ancestors. Humbling himself to be made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was pleased to descend from some that were infamous. That's Jesus. It's a testament, folks, of God's grace that he would include such unworthy names in Christ's family tree. Only God can work this way. Only God has that kind of grace. We try to hide our skeletons, but friends, God works in spite of our skeletons. Now back to Genesis 38. So I just want to give you that background and we'll tie it together here as we get to the end. Genesis 38, of all the grace that we see, Genesis 38 is a wicked story. Genesis 38 is full of sin. It's a scandal. It would have been on the front page of the Argus leader. The children of Israel, God's people, they were becoming far too familiar with the people of the land. And and that's part of the problem here is they were risking their identity by by joining with the people of the land. God's plan was, uh, was was at risk because they're getting too close to the people of the land. And he said, you need to stay away from those influences. Now, I believe this story lets us know that why God set in motion his plan to take the nation of Israel to Egypt because he's watching them, he's watching their hearts get connected over here. He says, I want you over there, but they're connected over here. And so a few years later, he sends a famine and he forces the family to go to Egypt where he's already sent Joseph on ahead to be ready to preserve the nation. God, you may say, well, this is, these are tough circumstances. I believe God's working in all of them. God is getting them to the place where the nation is preserved and and he's working in spite of sin. His grace and his faithfulness is always working in spite of our sinfulness. And just so you know, in spite of the way we're told that man is evolving and man's getting better and at least, you know, we're getting better as as the human race, no, sin is still very much a problem. And you read a chapter like this, and you might think, well, well, that's just really bad. I can't believe it was going on. Have you, have you looked around today? I mean, we are just as prone to making messes of our lives as Judah was. We're, we're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. We've all done our blushworthy things. We've all done things we regret. And although we often feel despair as a result, if this story tells us anything, it reminds us that it's never too late for God to turn things around for you. I mean, just consider what he does for Judah. Judah's name means praise, but there's not much to praise. He's the one that suggested in Genesis 37 that they sell their little brother Joseph to earn money. And rather than kill him, let's just sell him. At least we can make some money from it. He was cold and he was heartless. 
In Genesis 38, we find him willing to cast aside God's plan for his life to align himself with an Adulamite and marry a Canaanite. He didn't know, now we know, he didn't know all that God had in store for him. He didn't know that his family was going yet to going to be the, the royal family. But, but he did know, folks, he did know that you don't marry somebody who doesn't serve your God. He knew that. That was clear to him. He had God's, he didn't have, maybe have God's specific will for his life, but he knew God's moral will. And friend, you may not know, may not know God's plan for your life, but you do have God's revealed will for your life. And I'm telling you, if you'll follow this book, you'll keep yourself out of those blushworthy moments. Yeah, so many people are scratching their head why life is so bad and why life is so hard. God has given you a manual. He's given you a guidebook. He's given you the instructions for life. And if you would simply submit yourself to his revealed will for your life, you would keep yourself out of those kinds of moments. Amen. Just follow this and, and you don't have to deal with it. I know it sounds easy. I'm saying, saying it like it's so easy. No, sometimes I know it's difficult. But you know what makes it more difficult is when you align yourself with people that aren't going that direction. See, Judah knew there were boundaries. Don't marry a Canaanite. Don't align yourself with an Adulamite. Don't commit fornication. Don't be allied with people that don't serve your God. But what does he do in verse 1? It says, it came to pass at that time Judah went down from his brethren and he turned in to a certain Adulamite. He consciously left his family. He consciously left those people that would have helped him in his walk with God. He left them behind so he could go and hang out with somebody that did not serve his God. And I'm just telling you this morning, and I've said it before, it's not just a teenager message. Be careful who your friends are. Be careful who you align yourself with. You're influenced by those who you surround yourself with. You can't help it. I mean, at work and on social media, um, there, there's a Dulemites everywhere, friends. And if you're not careful, then you will start to be infiltrated with their mindset. Judah left his brethren because you can't be friends with both. You understand that? Is that you have to make a choice. You're either friends with those that are going God's direction or you're friends with those that are going against God's direction. And you can't straddle the fence. You've got to make a choice between the two. You've got to pick one or the other. And Judah picked an Adulamite. And many of you are picking Adulamites. Friend, you need to align yourself with God's people and God's plan and God's will because doing the opposite is going to hurt you. You need a church family. I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for saying that. You say, well, of course you say that. You're a pastor. No, I need a church family. I need a community of people that I know are going God's direction because it's hard enough for me to keep going God's direction on my own and much less than when I surround myself with people that aren't going God's direction. That just makes it harder. I need a group of people to encourage me. I need a group of men on Sunday mornings when I come in and, and there's men here this morning that are, that are excited to come and pray and seek God and, and they just want to encourage their pastor. I'm telling you, I need that on Sundays. I don't know what I would do without it. You need a community of people that'll, that'll help you in this life because the Adulamites are everywhere. Be careful of developing those close relationships with people that don't love your God. And I'm not saying, you know, to completely separate and don't have any influence. No, I'm saying you don't be the one that gets influenced. Most Christians think, well, I'm going to be able to handle this. I can do this on my own. I don't need help. And, 
and no, no, the je you're jeopardizing your well-being and the well-being of your family. Parents, be careful of aligning yourself with the wrong people and inserting the wrong mindsets into your life, the minds of your children, because you cannot, uh, you cannot let it uh, not affect you. It'll, it'll start to wear away at your mindsets. It'll start to affect your your. Your, your philosophy, it'll start to affect your view of God. And kids are impressionable too. Be careful. You know, Judah married a Canaanite and he knew better. He set God's will aside so he could get what he wanted. And when you do that, you jeopardize your future. And just like Judah, I, mean, I think about the sexual sin in this passage. And I don't want to get too graphic today, but listen, it's everywhere and it's available and it used to be that sexual sin and pornography and, and these other lifestyles that, that you would have to go somewhere to find it. And now we've kind of gotten to the point where it's not just been accepted, now it's being celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, you're canceled. I mean, I, I, can't, I just can't even imagine some of the things that are being taught to this generation right now. These children are being exposed to things and it's celebrated. I mean, the drag shows and those kinds of things. And they're being taught, you know, how to do those things. And, and I'm thinking, wait, at what's up? what point do we kind of regain consciousness and, and admit, no, this is, I, you wouldn't expose a child to that on the street. Why are you going to let that happen in a, in, a, in a school or a library? How did we get here? Well, we got here because God's people on a consistent basis have aligned themselves with the Dulamites. It's our responsibility to be salt and light in this world. We can't expect the world to, to figure out what's right and start doing right. No, it's been our job from the beginning. And it's our job to stay salt and light and let our good works be seen by the world. And they'll look at us and say, they've got something different. We're not walking the line trying to be close to them. No, we're standing over here on the side of righteousness and letting God's holiness decide who we are and what we look like and what we do. And the world needs to see that kind of light again. It's everywhere. You see it everywhere. Judah marries this Canaanite girl named Tamar because he aligned himself with the Adulamites. That always happens. You start to align yourself with the wrong people and you'll start making big life decisions that you never would have made before. But now their mindsets have started to influence you. He marries Tamar, a Canaanite. They have a son named Ur and he's so wicked God judges and kill him, kills him. He has another son named Onan and uh, his second son was just as evil. He was given Tamar to raise a family with. That was his duty. And, his, and it was the custom, the law of the day to give Tamar children to, to uh, assign or attribute to his brother. But listen, Onan knew that those children would be considered his brother's children. And he didn't want the responsibility. But he was willing to enjoy the pleasure. You see, that's Onan's sin. He took advantage of a situation to gratify his own desires. But listen, and this is very important. When you gratify your own desires but refuse to accept responsibility, you, you place yourself at the risk of God's judgment. And if this doesn't define our society now, I don't know what does. Because our culture is all about let's enjoy the gratification of sinful pleasures, but we don't want the responsibility that comes from it. I want to gratify my desires, but I don't want to, to accept the responsibility. I want to do what feels good, but I don't want to deal with the consequences. 
Well, I mean, is that not the root cause of the argument behind the abortion debate? Because we've got a whole culture of people, they want to enjoy the gratification and the pleasure that comes with sin. But when it comes to the responsibility, now they're saying, now I want the pleasure, I don't want the responsibility. So give me the right to take care of the responsibility because I don't want to deal with the consequences of my actions. That's not fair. I have the right to not deal with the consequences of my actions. That's what they're saying. It doesn't work with any other crime. It doesn't work with any other, in any other area of life. But in this one, uh, for 50 plus years, we've been trained to think, well, that's the nat- a woman should be able to have the right to choose that. No, it's a problem in God's eyes. He judged Onan for it. You don't get to enjoy the pleasures of sin and not take the responsibility for it. It's not a small thing to God. The spirit of the age right now is no small thing to God. Alan Ross said the attitude of gratification without responsibility has been repeated from generation to generation in immoral people. And it's being repeated in our culture. And Christian, you've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't adopt the same mindset and say, well, they can enjoy pleasure and they don't have responsibility, so I'm going to do the same thing. No, it's not a mark of God's people to live that way. We've got to say no to the pleasure. We've got to say no to the sin before we deal with the consequences. Enjoy, listen, they're saying enjoy the pleasure. They're saying if it feels good, do it. Just don't take responsibility. But I just want to remind you, the Bible says that marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. He doesn't take lightly that our culture celebrates cheating and celebrates the pleasures of sin with no restraint and no responsibility. And I'm telling you this, uh, the Bible says, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And we live in a nation where that's celebrated. I'm just telling you, judgment is coming and we deserve it. God hates the mindset that says, give me pleasure, but no responsibility. Ur is gone at this point. Onan is gone. And Judah has watched his, his two sons die because in his mind of Tamar. You know, that's another sign of our age. It's, it can't be my son's responsibilities. It's got to be Tamar's fault. You know, so, so Shelah, his, his, his third son, he doesn't want him to marry uh, Tamar and die too. So he says, oh, well, let me give, me give me some time. Let him grow up a little bit and, and uh, let's, let's, uh, I'll, I'll give him to you in a, in a little bit. He has no intention. He's not keeping his word. Sometime later in verse 13, uh, Judah goes on a business trip. And he goes on a business trip with his buddies and and what happens, honestly, I'm just throwing in, I mean, just preaching the text and throwing in where I can. But you know what happens on business trips far too often is there's no accountability and no oversight. And guys get away from their families and they're away from home and there's nobody watching. They've got a room of their own and there's no oversight or accountability and bad things can happen. So you men that travel, be careful. Tamar's away, or Judah's away um, and he's in a different place and, and he wants to have some fun and, and prostitution is a blight on this culture just like it's a blight on our culture and it's been a blight on just about every culture since then. And she knows that Judah acts on impulse. She knows that Judah doesn't follow God's word. Judah's not all that concerned uh, with God's will. So she says at the end of verse 16, 
um, she, he comes to her and says, you know, I'd like to get together and, and, and have some fun together. And she says, okay, what are you going to give me? And he says, well, I'll send you a goat. And she says, well, give me a pledge. You don't have the goat with you, so give me a sign that you're going to send me the goat. And so he gives her a signet, and he gives her bracelets, and he gives her the staff. And I want to just, the signet would just be a, a, a symbol of Judah's family on a ring or a medallion. And typically they would carry it around their neck on, on a rope or a chain around their neck. It, it would be like somebody's driver's license. There'd be no denying who the, whose signet this was. So he leaves his driver's license, and he basically, and not really, but basically, he leaves his, his ID, and he leaves this bracelet and the staff with her, and, and she conceives twins, and then he leaves, and he tries to send a, a, a kid back to her, a goat, and she's nowhere to be found. And don't you think, like, like we do often, that Judah's probably thinking, oh, this, that's over. I, I, we can move on. You know, he's thinking, well, I'm glad that, you know, that part is over and, and, you know, that sin went unnoticed by God. Be sure your sin will find you out. You know, when I was a kid, that verse got quoted a lot. It scared me to death. You don't hear it quoted very much anymore, but you know what? Honestly, it should still scare us to death. Because God sees every action we commit. He knows every word. He knows every thought. He knows every deed. Be sure your sin will find you out. Because three months later, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant. And he says, oh, what a wicked young lady. She's committed whoredom. Bring her forth. Let her be burnt. And in public, Judah's a righteous man in public. Until she says, I'm with the child of the owners of these things. And she pulls out his driver's license. That's when he acknowledges she's more righteous than I. I didn't give her my son like I told her I would. And he knows he's messed up. And listen, I believe that he's contrite here. I believe that he has contrition. And I believe it's a turning point in the story. It says he knew her again no more. He didn't continue on in his sin. He admitted it was him. I mean, he couldn't really deny it. But how devastating that a Canaanite woman was more righteous than the, uh, than, than the had more regard for God and his word um, than the great grandson of Abraham, the friend of God. This relationship results in the birth of Zerah and Pharez, and Zerah was older, but Pharez came first, and they were in conflict. It sounds like Jacob and Esau all over again. Just a mess. But I want to place over this, this idea that our sin may be great, but it's not so great that it stops God's plan of redemption. Our sin may be great, but it's not so great that it stops God's plan for redemption. God's plan, and listen, God's plan was to send a Messiah through this line of kings to save mankind from their sin. And redemption is at stake, folks. And Judah had to have sons for that to happen. And even though this wickedness abounds in this story, God's plan for redemption still moves forward. And I just want to tell you this morning, friend, your sin is no match for God's redemption. Judah jeopardized everything and his own lineage with sinful choices. But God's grace overcame it to carry forward the plan for salvation. Judah still came through the line of Judah. And before we judge, we do the same thing. 
We put our lives at risk with our sinful choices. But God still has a plan for redemption. He wants to forgive you. He wants a relationship with you. Your sin is no match for God's grace. Just understand, your sin puts you in jeopardy. See, breaking God's known will is still a reproach to any people. And you say, man, you're really preaching about sin. That's not very popular today. No, we need to hear this stuff. Sin thrills, but it kills. Sin fascinates and assassinates. I like that one. It's intriguing. It's deceiving. It takes you farther than you want to go. Sin, it it, uh, ignores instruction and brings destruction. It separates you from God. It'll separate you from your family. Husbands, it'll separate you from your wife. Wives, it'll separate you from your husbands. Parents, it'll separate you from your children. Children, it'll separate you from your parents. Churches, it'll separate and destroy and disunify a whole church. That's what sin does. It only, only ever leads to regret. And you can ignore God's word all you want, but you cannot escape the consequences of sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And this account is full of God's people breaking God's commandments. And we do the same. They're telling lies and we do too. They're not keeping their word and we do too. They're aligning ourselves with the word, I'm sorry, the world instead of God's people. And we do the same thing. There's sexual activity outside of marriage. and, And we do the same, even men, if it's just in our minds. They're enjoying pleasure without responsibility. They're being a hypocrite like Judah, and we can do the same thing. And you say, well, this is hard preaching. I just want to say, as a result, yes, we do learn from this, that God still impartially judges sin. He does. But you know what else I learn here is that God still graciously saves sinners. See, including you. Including you. I mean, think about the story. Judah's so wicked, and, and yet he's, he's in Christ's family tree. In Revelation 5, John sees this, this vision of heaven, and, and it says, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the root of David, he can open the book. Judah's name will be spoken in heaven. Not only that, Revelation 21, uh, the, when it's talking about the heaven itself and the massive walls and there's 12 gates around the city. And you know whose names are written on the gates around the city, around heaven in the future someday? It's the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those 12 tribes' names is Judah. So Judah, this wicked man, this profane person, this fornicator who has so many blushworthy moments, his name will be spoken in heaven, Jesus, the tribe line of the tribe of Judah, and his name will be written in heaven on the gates of one of those uh, of the city of heaven. I mean, those, those gates around the city will have the names of those 12 tribes. And you say, no, God, God really, he's not a God of grace. He's not a God of mercy. He's not a God of forgiveness. He's a hard God. No, I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter how blushworthy your moments are. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is. It doesn't matter how much regret you have. It doesn't matter how much people would look at you and write you off. You have a God in heaven who doesn't write you off. As a matter of fact, he'll write your name in the Lamb's book of life because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross 
for your sins in your place. Don't write yourself off because God hasn't and he wants you to spend eternity in heaven with him. And you see, just like Judah, your name will can be spoken in heaven when God opens the Lamb's book of life and looks for your name and says, oh, there you are. Your name is written in heaven if you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior in the Lamb's book of life, just like Judah. And your past could be full of sin. Your past could be full of regret. Your name might mean adulterer. Your name might mean shame. Your main name might mean lost cause. That's your name. But God's grace is able to take your name and write it down in that book. And guess whose name was spoken in heaven someday? This is a hard story, but you know the message? His grace is greater than our sins. His forgiveness is bigger than our failures. His love surpasses our worst mistakes. And yes, God still judges sin, but he still saves the sinners. Because his son took your place. He died on a cross. He was judged for your sin. God's wrath was poured out on his son as he paid for your sins. And now we have the option to enjoy God's grace, to be forgiven. Your name doesn't have to remain a reproach. Your name could be a testimony to the wonderful grace of God. You know, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, that's Judah, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's Judah, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, these are big sins, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You know what, in, in, for many of us in this room, those sins apply to us. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But ye are washed. You're sanctified. But we are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. See, Jesus' name is greater than whatever sins people think of when they hear your name. Jesus' name is greater. And he can turn it all around for you. And if you'll simply accept him as your savior, he can erase your past and he can change your future. You know what Jesus can do? Like he did for Judah, he can take you from blushing to blessing. Your family tree doesn't have to define you. Let Jesus define you. Your past doesn't have to hold you back. Let Jesus move you forward. Your name may be a shame right now, but Jesus wants to write it down in the book of life. And I believe he wants to shout it in heaven someday. So everybody hears that a name that once meant something bad now is getting to spend eternal life, eternity in heaven with God. God judges sin, but he saves sinners. Friend, would you be willing to be saved today? Aren't you tired? I mean, when you read a story like this, you know, for many of us, we think, well, that story, that's just too, I can't believe somebody went through all that. For some of you right here in this room, those of you that aren't sleeping, for some of you, you're like, well, that sounds like my story. And I'm reading these things, you're like, that doesn't sound too far-fetched to me. But I'm telling you, that's not the way you have to live.
It doesn't have to be that way. And you, you came in this morning and you know you've got sin in your life. You know you're a sinner and you know God's not happy with it. And, and that sin, I'm just telling you, that sin, the wage of that sin is death. And you'll be, you'll be sent forever, for eternity, separated from God to hell, separated forever. That's what you deserve. But Jesus died in your place where you should have died on the cross. And he died for the worst sin you've ever committed. He knows every sin. He died for all of them. And he died so you don't have to spend eternity separated. He died so you could spend eternity in heaven with him forever. And all you have to do is accept his payment and be saved this morning. So I'm asking you, would you be willing to be saved today? Say, oh, I don't really know what to do. Well, at invitation time, all you have to do, everyone else will be praying, their heads will be bowed, and you just find somebody close to you, you come up forward. We've got people that will take you a Bible and just show you real quickly how you can know for sure if you die today, you're going to heaven. It's that simple. So stop doing it your way. Turn to him. He's done all the work. Christian, are you aligning yourself? Listen, don't assume this just applies to everybody else. Christian, are you aligning yourself with those who aren't helping you go God's way? Do you have an Adulamite in your life? Somebody that's been influencing you to go the different direction? Maybe you've taken a step back from your church family and you're getting connected with other influences and it's not helping you. Maybe it's time to recommit to God's house for the sake of your spiritual life and your family's. Dads, what voices are you allowing into your homes that are it's, they're affecting your family? Teens, who are you listening to that aren't helping you walk toward God? I think we probably have too many Christians hanging out with the Dulamites and nothing good ever comes from that. You'll get caught up in the mindset of pleasure without responsibility and you'll regret every moment. Time to get that right today, Christian. Three, do you assume God can't use you based on your past? Judah's name, Judah's name didn't mean a whole lot. It was supposed to mean praise, and honestly, it was cringeworthy. Tamar's name, she pretended to be a harlot. Pharaoh's and Zerah, they were conceived in an illegitimate relationship between a father and his daughter-in-law. And yet, each of their names are written in Christ's family tree. So don't tell me you've done too much for God to use you. You can't sit there and tell me you don't know how, how much I've done. You don't know how bad I've, I've, I've been. God can't use me. Don't tell me that when these are the names. Not for just somebody. These are Jesus Christ family tree names. He wants to use you. He wants to turn it around for you. It doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how great your sin is. God looks at you through the lens of grace and he says, I can still use that one. That one looks too hopeless, but they're not too far gone for me. I know what they did, but I want them to be a part of my plan. God's amazing grace can change the direction of your life. Just remember, God's grace is greater than my sin or my past or even my name. Nothing can stop God's plan of redemption, not your sin not your past, not your failures, not your name. So my message to you this morning is this, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound.
That's the lesson. God wants to take you from blushing to blessing. And if you'll humble yourself before him this morning, it can happen right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.